for me, Birdie Light is is sort of my last act of parenting for Eli. And um, that makes it easier, you know, because I, every time I do something, a task for Birdie Light, and some of them are very mundane, you know, I have to, today I had to run to the post office. And and in some ways it's it's weird. I mean, maybe my brain is a little off since everything happened, but for me, it's sort of like, I have to run this errand for Eli. We are back in the Gravity Podcast with Beth Weinstock. Beth, this is a long overdue, um, but I am very happy to be with you today and appreciate you taking time to uh, share your story here on our podcast. Thank you, Brett, for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Good. So let's um, follow the format and start at the beginning. I'm curious to get to know you from your early days. If you could maybe just talk a little bit about your life as a as a kid, your family, where you're from, sort of the dynamics of what it was like to be uh, a child. So I grew up in Cincinnati, family of four. I have an older brother, large family of engineers, mostly electrical engineers, which I knew from the beginning was not going to be me. <laughs> uh, my Father was an electrical engineer, and I grew up in a pretty traditional household. Mom didn't work for the longest time, and, and uh, you know, the type of family that rarely eats out. We had family dinner every night together, and my dad had a huge garden. I mean, it was a pretty idyllic childhood, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Just really good people my parents mm. are. My father's deceased, but my mom is living and, and uh, really focused uh, on education, I was the, I am the first woman in my family to graduate from college. Mm. And so a real huge focus on reading and libraries and education. And I, I spent a lot of nerdy hours mm. as a kid just mm-hmm. reading. But I, you know, I always hate to say an idyllic childhood because I think then people think, well, there's got to be something in there, right? <laughs> um, but it was, it was pretty standard, sort of mm-hmm. middle class upbringing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and having done enough of these recordings and interviewing people about their life, it is probably more common than I thought uh, to hear that people do have truly unconditionally loving, you know, ideal childhoods. It's actually um, sort of seems like it's about 50-50 where there is something and or there's yeah. um, something that's, that's quite nice. And uh, and I'm curious, you know, when you when you talk about you and the reading and sort of the nerdy part, you know, tell me a little bit about what your interests were. What was what was really, uh, if you remember, you know, and maybe it's in hindsight, you know, what was kind of sparking your uh, interest at that point in your life? I think I always had a fascination with language and story, so I I just read voraciously. Perhaps also sort of dreamy, not really connected with uh, the world in my early years. I mean, as time went on, I had more of like a good, a good friend group. And but um, what motivated that for me is really hard to say. I started reading very early, and it was always just an escape for me. Or escape sounds a negative, but I um, I just let the flow of language the way that people form sentences 
has always been a bit of an obsession for me. Mm. So even in my busy years, high school, playing sports and going out with friends, I was always, I always had a stack of books by my bed. Mm-hmm. It's changed as I've gotten older because there's not always enough time, but I still um, find that that's the place where I always go to. Mm-hmm. And were you reading uh, fiction um, sort of when you talk about the escape, the you know fantasy, is it... Is it that, or were you reading to learn, or both? You, it didn't matter. You would read anything. I would read anything, and and the weird thing now that I look back on it, I didn't think it was weird at the time, but I look back on it now and I think, okay, I read the Little House on the Prairie series, mm-hmm. but I didn't just read it once. I read it like eight times, mm-hmm. and so those characters <laughs> almost seemed to be like living with me, mm. and so all of those famous series of books, I would just read over and over again. Mm. Yeah, I would read anything. Interesting. So you go on to also, you know, hang out with friends and, you know, get involved in normal teenage stuff. Any other sort of, um, I don't know, things that were sparking your attention at that point? Or was that, uh, did that start to come as you went off to college? Well, I always wanted to be a veterinarian. So that was a big deal in like middle school, high school. Um, but I did the standard high school stuff. You know, I got sort of boy crazy. And uh-huh. I went to a lot of parties. And, you know, so I, I wasn't as nerdy as I got older. Yeah. But I was also, you know, how you, yeah. st- you stay a nerd always. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Closet nerd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I just, uh, at times in my life, especially late high school, early college, I was just about, being out there, social, mm-hmm. you know, uh, probably not always for the best outcome, you know. But yeah. um, so it morphed in, into more of an interest in my social life, and I wasn't as engaged in maybe what my future looked like. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just out there having fun. Always. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, fun matters. I think it's an important thing, mm-hmm. you know. We often in life can get pretty serious and life can get pretty serious and heavy as, as you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think it's important to, especially at that age, you know, I think it's, it's a problem that I see with kids today. They're out there having fun, no doubt, but there does seem to be a lot of pressure to perform and to know what they want to do with their lives. And it sounds like you were suspending that just to have a little bit of fun. I definitely was. And I went into college thinking I would go into to medicine, which is ultimately what happened. And there was a point in college, I think I was a sophomore at University of Michigan, and I started writing for the Michigan Daily, which is their newspaper. And I decided just on a whim, I'm not going to medical school. I'm going to be a journalist. And I did that for about six months. And then I changed my mind and I came back to medicine. And I think now that maybe young people don't have that kind of freedom mm-hmm. to just try something for a bit mm-hmm. and enjoy it and then come back to something. Mm-hmm. They seem so, I don't know, linear. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of pressure to, you know, graduate in a certain amount of time. And if mm-hmm. you're, you know, exploring, it's going to delay that and extend your, your time and the cost yeah. of being in college. But that's, that's interesting because you have these you know, kind of two sides of you, the the medicine side, which feels like the, um, you know, the voracious reader, the, the nerdy side that's, you know, if you're going to go into medicine, there's a tremendous amount of study and, you know, commitment and dedication that not everybody has and an intellect that's required. And then there's the kind of creative side of you that's the writing and maybe the fantasy part of the reading. And you're juggling that 
you know, it sounds like in, in college trying to figure out. When, when you think about coming back to medicine, do you remember what it was that brought you back to medicine and away from the journalism? It's funny. I've tried to think of that. Was there a moment or a, a pivot point? And I do remember that I decided to go ahead and take the MCAT, which is the entrance exam for medical school. And I, I did pretty well on it. And I think I, I think I somewhat passively said, well, I might as well do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't always think that was the best way to decide because at times over the years, I've thought maybe medicine wasn't the right thing for me, which I think a lot of people think about their careers. Mm-hmm. You know? So I, I sort of, I think, floated into it if my memory is correct. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to remember mm-hmm. all of those decision-making pivot points. Mm-hmm. But that, I think that I just sort of did okay on the test and then I decided to go for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I'm curious, you know, you said you're the first um, woman in your family to go away to college, to graduate from college. And I'm wondering if there was any pressure or even if it was implied or conditioning from family or society, anything that had you feeling like medicine was a route that would be respected or, you know, growing up it was doctors and lawyers, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if it was that or if there was some other care for wanting to, you know, provide medicine to other people. Uh, what was it that maybe beyond just the floating piece had you going that route? Well, I don't recall any pressure to go into medicine for my family. Mm-hmm. I do think that there was that be a doctor, be a lawyer mm-hmm. when we were growing up as sort of the the professions to be. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure that had some undue influence on me. I did for the longest time want to be a veterinarian. And speaking of reading, I read those James Harriet books where he, he cares for all the livestock as a veterinarian. Mm-hmm. I read them each probably five times mm-hmm. and, and was really sort of obsessed with this idea of veterinarian medicine. And then once I got to college, that wasn't as accepted, I think. Mm. It wasn't common. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get to a place, a big school like University of Michigan, and everybody's pre-med or mm-hmm. pre-law. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was some element of, like, societal pressure uh, to do that. And I already knew I was interested in uh, how science works, you know, how the body works, mm-hmm. how, how we cure people, heal people. So that was always an interest. But again, I will go back to the idea, and, and this is in retrospect, because I've been practicing medicine sure. for 25 years. I th- I do think there was some element of just sort of floating into medicine. Mm-hmm. Because I did well academically, it seemed like the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you get older, you know yourself better. Mm-hmm. I don't have regrets. I just think maybe that decision wasn't as thought out as it should have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when you say floating, just to be clear... Do you think it's sort of like an unconscious thing that you're just kind of going with, or is it something else that's kind of calling you? What is what is your belief on like how we float into things? It's a really good question. I think it has something to do naturally with your personality mm-hmm. in the sense that for the longest time, and maybe that's not the case for me now, but for the longest time, I wasn't much of a disruptor. Mm. Um, I wasn't much of a person to say... For example, I mean, you would hear of young people saying, well, I created my own major and mm-hmm. I'm going to do a triple major of all these things because it fulfills my passion of, you know, building houses in Ecuador. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for me, as a 18, 19, 20-year-old, I never thought like that. Mm-hmm. I thought there were paths. 
Yeah. And you had to go into one of the paths. Pick, pick one and go yeah. with it. And so now I think back, well, maybe I could have been more of a disruptor. That doesn't mean I wouldn't have ended up in medicine, mm-hmm. but I probably would have maybe found my own way to it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you float into medicine mm-hmm. and you go through medical school. I'm curious, the writing part, the journalism part, does that also carry on as a hobby? Are you still a voracious reader or do you just you know, have to focus entirely on, on medical school at that point? Well, it was challenging. Uh, so I had not much time. I would occasionally write a poem or an essay, still read a lot, but less than I had. And I, yeah, I, I sort of let it go for a long time because once, you know, med school's over, residency picked up and that was incredibly intense at, from an hour um, commitment standpoint. And then by the time I was a third year resident, I, you know, got married and had a baby. Mm-hmm. So there was a period of time there where I was not engaged in literature, reading, poetry, anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh that that makes sense, mm-hmm. you know, with being newly married, having children, being a resident, it's a lot. I mean, yeah. that's, that's a tremendous amount for anybody to um, take on at one time. So tell me a little bit more about kind of where things go from there. You're starting a family, you're moving your way um, through medical school. Um, talk to me a little bit about how your life goes at that point. Well, I finished residency at 28. And I was married at that point, and I decided I would buy a practice, a medical practice with a friend, because he was um, going to sort of do the the bulk of the work, and I was going to help him, but with the understanding I would work part-time. This is in primary care. And uh, it went really well. I was working part-time. I had a baby. I soon had another baby. And he and I were owning this practice. I was only working like two and a half days a week seeing patients, mm-hmm. but also helping with the business side of it. And that went, that went well for seven years. And then he moved to mm-hmm. San Diego. Mm-hmm. And so I was the sole owner of a practice. And there was that, that's the next decision-making point. Was I going to let that go and be more focused on a family? By the time he left, I had a third child. And... I decided I would dive headfirst in and build this practice and make it something. So perhaps another pivot point where I floated into something. <laughs> and, uh, you know, within a couple of years, we had um, four doctors working there, you know, a staff of maybe 12, 13, and I had three babies at home. Mm. And so I spent a lot of my 30s just stretching myself way too thin. <laughs> Uh, again, hard to say that's a regret, but I look back on it and I think, well, maybe I didn't need to take on that much, mm-hmm. but I didn't want the practice to fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was something that extended through my 30s into my 40s. I owned the practice for 17 years. What was it that had you wanting to own and, and build this practice? I mean, it's one thing to take it from your partner and own it, but then you go on to really build a practice was it what was it that was was driving you at that point i mean if we're going to go deep psychologically mm-hmm. there's just this sense of i can't fail mm-hmm. i don't want to just shut the doors and say we're done mm-hmm. so i and i also wanted to model it as a physician owned female owned practice and we ended up hiring 
three uh, women physicians who also had children at home. So I wanted to build this model of like, you can be a doctor, do meaningful work, but you can also have a home life. Mm -hmm. And it's a wonderful model. It sounds like it, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in medicine, that's not really a great economic model. Mm -hmm. So we were always on this really razor thin margin Mm -hmm. of, of like paying the bills and making sure we were seeing enough patients to pay the bills, but also making sure you know, the moms got home at five to take care of their kids. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a model that was destined for success. Mm. So we spent, you know, 12 years doing reasonably well, but it was always a struggle Mm -hmm. and a worry. So, you know, I do have some regrets about that because I feel like for most of my kids' young life, I spent sort of worrying about this practice, Mm -hmm. which, um, you know, worry is a sort of a useless exercise mm-hmm. when you look, when you look back on it. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, the the fear of failure. Do you think that's just a societal conditioning is that does that come from somewhere is that just how you're wired, you know, it's not uncommon. Um, but I'm curious for you what's what that what's kind of underneath that or was at that point? I think it's probably a combination of this idea that work ethic solves everything, uh, and which isn't true, I've learned. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you say, if I only put in this many hours, if I work hard enough at it, then it will be fine. And so I spent a, like probably a decade with that thought in, that thought in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned from that. I mean, I learned honestly that, you know, like somebody said to me once, if you know, if you lose money on every patient you're seeing, you're never going to come out ahead, right? Mm-hmm. So you just can't see, keep seeing more patients, mm-hmm. and um, that's a mistake that is commonly repeated in in medicine. Yeah. Um, so I I, get, I guess I just for the longest time thought me knowing myself plus a good work ethic equals success. And I thought that will keep me from failing. Mm-hmm. Now, where the fear of failing comes from, I'm not sure. I think I've just always thought if I think enough and if I do enough, everything will be fine, mm-hmm. which is probably the business person's curse, right? Because mm-hmm. you can only do so much in a failing model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. We, I was actually just having this conversation with somebody at my company about some ideas that um, we're playing with. And I learned a long time ago that at Google in their moonshots department, they try to um, kill off ideas fast. In fact, they will pay people bonuses who kill ideas because <laughs> their um, goal is to not have something that's not going to work take up more time and, and energy. Let's just figure it out fast. And I think you're right. There is this thing in entrepreneurs and in a lot of people in general who do not want to acknowledge mistakes and failures. And sometimes owning it is the the best thing that we can do, but it's hard. So, and, I, and I'm kind of curious what your thoughts were about just being in business in general. I mean, you you get into medicine, but you end up both a practitioner and um, a a business owner. Did you did you like the business aspect? Did you how did you adapt to being an owner of a business? Well, there's no training for that in medical school. Uh, there's a, a monthly journal that comes out called Medical Economics with articles and uh, for tips for you know business uh, slash physicians. 
And I read that. <laughs> and uh, really, that's it. I had some help from, of course, you know, good uh, accountants and a few advisors. But no, I didn't know that much about it. I learned so much. So I'm really happy I did that. I also learned early on that if I have to learn to read a spreadsheet, I can do it. It's it's the same thing. Like if you if you put enough time into something, you can eventually master it. Mm-hmm. So I I sort of dove into that and enjoyed it for a while. But um, after a while, I think I just felt um, I felt like I wanted to make this thing a success before I closed it. Mm. And it never got to that point. Mm-hmm. You know, when I when I sold that um, business to um, Central Ohio Primary Care, we were in debt, mm-hmm. uh, which. To me, the way I was raised felt like such a mark of shame. Mm. And then the more I learned from our mutual friend, Artie Isaac, I was in his uh, small business Vistage group. Mm-hmm. And um, I learned that it's, it's quite common to, mm. to get rid of businesses that are in debt. And yeah. it didn't scare anyone else. It just mm-hmm. scared me. Mm-hmm. And so I did. I got rid of it. We were in debt. And um, I tell you, I've never felt so much relief in mm-hmm. my whole life mm-hmm. just to be done with it. Mm-hmm. And um you know, what we built 17 years, I mean, the primary thing is we, we took care of a lot of patients. We did really good work. It was the business side of it that just was never going to make it. Mm-hmm. If you look around, there's very rare, uh, a very rare privately owned practice these days. Mm-hmm. There's not anyone really just hanging up a shingle and saying, I'm a doctor. Mm-hmm. And that's what we were attempting to do. Yeah. It's a interesting idea and um, one that sounds... I can understand why you chose to go about it the way you did. I mean, you were trying to solve a problem that you had for yourself and you weren't alone. There were other mothers who also wanted to practice and have um, the time available for their families. And I'm wondering if you think that that's just not achievable in the owning your own medical practice, or if that's achievable in, in other areas or if it's just really hard to do both, whether that be, you know, a mother or father that's attempting to have a career and stay at home or parent children. I think that since I bought that practice, it's gotten better. Mm-hmm. When I bought the practice, it was 1998. It's hard to believe. And um, it, there weren't that many options to just sort of make your own schedule. And to say that, well, on this day, I'm going to come in at 9.30 and uh, I'm going to leave early every Thursday, you know, and, and pick your days off. Like, I didn't find that many options when I looked around Columbus back then, but I think it's better now. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of bigger health corporations like Ohio Health or, you know, Ohio State now allows for that kind of schedule. Mm-hmm. I think they were forced to, mm-hmm. you know, when you think about um, 50% of the workforce now is is female. And again, it's not just a mom issue, but it, it, it often lands that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, we are doing a better job, I think as a society, not just for parents, but um, just the general need to not be fully consumed or obligated to work all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're making some strides in the right direction Definitely. there. Yeah. So, so let's, you know, what happens then after you move on from your practice? Talk a little bit about your both, you know, career and your personal life. Well, at that point, obviously much sooner than when I sold the practice, but I had had four kids. 
um, I actually sold the practice and I, I went back to school and got my master's of fine arts and creative writing. So that somewhat came full circle for me. I decided, uh, what, what do I really want to do? And I did it. I was so privileged and lucky to be able to do it. It was a remote program through Bennington Writing Seminars. So um, I took a job as an employed physician at Equitas Health, just working two days a week. And I got my master's in creative writing. And I sort of was at this stage in my life where, you know, you sort of say, oh, well, things are going well. I've graduated. Started writing a lot of uh, poetry, getting submitted uh, to some literary magazines and, and still working. Um, at that point, my kids were 2019, uh, 20, 18, uh, 14, and 11. So that was when I made the transition or when I graduated from, from the uh, writing program. And um, you know, my husband, Michael, is working full-time as an ER doctor. And so we have the sort of means or the ability for me to be flexible at this point, which, which is great. But uh, as you probably know, soon after that, my son Eli, who was a sophomore at American University, uh, died due to an unintentional fentanyl ingestion. And that was in March of 2021. So we're at the 18-month point from that. And so the whole order has been upended, mm-hmm. the whole order. Yeah, and um, I've heard you share this story, and it's, it's tough, you know, every time. But I'd like for you to share what you'd like to about um, Eli and, and kind of tell the story of um, what happened. Um, and I think it's important, and I know you know this, and this is why you're doing what you're doing now, because you know Eli was one of um, our kids. You know, he he it could have been anybody, and so I know that's now what you're committed to to doing and to help prevent. But maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, Eli and what happened. Sure. It gets easier to do this as time goes on. I probably couldn't have done this a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, Eli, like I mentioned, was a sophomore at American University, and he was thriving, doing really well. He was, uh, of all my kids, was the most uh, intensely creative and intensely alive. And I mean that in the in for the better and and for the not so great. Uh, in in some instances, Eli really gave us a run for our money at times. You know, he was an intense toddler. He was a um, energetic and intense uh, middle schooler. Uh, every one of his teachers at a various times in middle school had communication with me about Eli's um, comedy efforts in class and his um, his uh, tricks that he played on everybody. Uh, he uh, is is an unforgettable guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, as with some intensely creative and um, what I consider somewhat brilliant young people in high school, he pushed every boundary he could push and and also struggled with his mood a lot. And so high school, at least the end of high school, junior year, was really hard for him. And so what happened is he went away to college and he sort of took on this new this new life and he was doing so well, amazingly, um, had an internship lined up for the summer, uh, was doing well in his classes. He had just joined a fraternity and, and not even just like 
you know, going through his resume. That's not really what I'm saying. But what he was doing was becoming full Eli. Mm -hmm. He was like the 10-year-old again. Mm -hmm. He had friends who respected him. Uh, after he died, so many of those friends reached out and said that Eli um, was the guy who helped them, you know, mm -hmm. during a hard time or helped them adjust because they were the new kid. Mm -hmm. And so I think that beyond what he was trying to achieve in his life, I think he had come into his own as a person. So what happened? What we think happened is he was going to go out one night with his friends and he was getting ready to go out and we think he took something. What, what we don't know is what did he think he was taking? We're not sure of that, but he took something presumed to be a pill uh, and was going to head to the bar. So whatever was in that pill, we think, was composed either entirely of fentanyl or a mix of fentanyl and something called kratom, which is a plant-based uh, supplement that has opioid-like qualities. Those are the only two substances found in his body, was uh, fentanyl and kratom. And we know, you know that Eli didn't, at the time of his death, have a struggle with a substance use disorder. So we're, we're fairly confident. I mean, I would say as his mother, 100% confident that he wasn't intending to take fentanyl. Uh, we think he probably had purchased or was given a counterfeit pill, which he thought was something else, a tablet that he might take to go out for the night that would make him relaxed or energetic. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I've heard you, you know, share the, the story of, you know, you and, and, and meeting your husband and the kinds of things that we used to do. And when you think about the stuff that we did and that, you know, people have been doing for generations and you think about what might have happened with Eli, it feels very familiar as if it was just like a, you know, a little something to go have a good time and, hang out and be with friends and like you said either relax or energy it was pretty innocent you know and and that's the thing that that kind of one of the many things that strikes me is just how innocent a decision you know it was and how you know severe the 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 consequences are it's 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 not fair. It's not right. It's a big problem. Well, it's the biggest pro problem facing this generation. You know, it's it's a public health crisis that has no comparable numbers for the generation age fifteen to twenty five right now. You know, as I say in some of my uh, birdie light presentations, uh, it's it's the um, it it surpasses even um, car accidents, suicide. COVID, I mean, all of it combined doesn't even equal the number of people dying from this, the majority of which are unintentional fentanyl ingestions. So, you know, about six months after Eli died, my daughter, Olivia, and I decided to form Birdie Light, which is just an educational initiative. Because what we find, what we found when we talk to young people is that none of them know this information. None of them know that this tablet that someone gives them might have fentanyl in it. So my organization goes um, high school to college to back to youth groups, parent groups to just teach everyone 
about fentanyl, how to recognize it, how to test for it, and how to tell their friends about it. Yeah, I, I want to talk more about Birdie Light. And, and I'm curious a little bit about, you know, what I imagine, and, and, and I know that I can't really understand, but what I imagine it's, it, it was like for you to have that news, to have that experience, and, and then how you have, from a distance, just courageously, I mean, I have, I have such admiration for how you are moving into the world and, and doing something pretty significant about trying to solve this problem. I mean, I get the connection and why it's so important and important to you. I just can't even fathom like how you do it, honestly. And I'm curious if you could maybe talk a little bit about how you've moved from that place to where you are. And I know it's still very hard, but you are moving through it and trying to really do something with it. Not trying, you are. I think early on, well, I know early on, grief or whatever we want to call this horrific emotion that my family feels every day is um, so massive. You know, it's so big and, and it just wants to swallow you up. And you have to fight that, I think. I mean, I don't mean fight it entirely. You have to feel it. But you have to fight it swallowing you up because it's right there. Like, you know, it's like an inch away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I, I just, I think everyone's different, but I just needed to not let that be what Eli leaves with me. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't take to my bed and, you know, be, I feel like it sometimes, but but you can't because there are so many reasons because, I mean, obviously I have a life and three other kids, but there's also this feeling of like, Eli wouldn't, Eli, and I know people say, oh, Eli wouldn't want you to take to your bed. And that seems so abstract, but to me, it seems less abstract and more concrete. Mm -hmm. Like I can feel, and this is a little more mystical, but I mm -hmm. can feel that he is pushing me to keep moving. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if it's courage. I almost feel like it's the only other choice. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm, I don't know, um, but it feels sort of like that's a familiar thing for you and that you kind of flow, as you said earlier, into things. And maybe there's always been some something, you know, behind that flow. And now, you know, it, it sounds like it's Eli that's, you know, pushing you or helping that flow move. Well, I think a lot about, I mean, I'm, I'm a poet, so I think a lot about all these interconnecting pieces and how they all match up. And by no means am I saying anything was meant to be. Yeah. Obviously, this is a horrific chasm in the world and nothing like this was meant to be, but I also sometimes think about how I'm or my family is sort of perfectly poised to do this work. We sort of came together, you know, my skill set as a physician or a writer, and and then Eli's life and and how if anyone should do this work, it might be me. Mm. 
And not that I'm saying that in an arrogant way. No, no, no. But I think that it'd be a shame not to do this work. Yeah, I, I see you that way, perfectly poised to do this work. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because that doesn't skip over the pain and the, and the grief or, you know, as you said, this horrific feeling, right? That's still there and you find the poise to do the work. And it's, it's really, like I said, it's really admirable and inspiring and, um, and it's really good work. Let's talk a little bit more about Birdie Light. And you started to mention the size, the magnitude of what's going on with um, fentanyl right now, murders, as I've you know heard you um, call them, which I think is is important distinction from overdose. The numbers are astounding, and it and it does not match the the news or the you know dialogue as a society. You know, when you really look at the numbers, maybe you can speak to that. I think it's one of the most phenomenal things about this epidemic is the the lack of um, public outrage, the lack of alarm in high schools. And I know I'm very close to it emotionally, but when you really look at the data, so, you know, just last year in 12 months alone, 108,000 people, Americans died from a drug-related fatality and about 80% of those were due to fentanyl alone. And that kind of number, I know people get, we see so much in the news. We don't hold on to numbers, but but right now fentanyl is the leading cause of death for all Americans age 18 to 45. To me, that blows my mind. Yeah. And just one one substance, not drug-related fatalities, but fentanyl. Yeah. Leading cause of death age 18 to 45. And when you think of the lower end of that age spectrum, 18 we don't have any fentanyl education curriculum in our high schools in this country for the leading cause of death of the young people in the country. And I know we're playing catch up, but what we do is we try to get in front of high school students, often just in an auditorium setting. You know, I tell administrators, we need one hour and we'll stand in front of the students and we will teach them everything they need to know because they're not getting it. And um, that works really well most of the time, but a lot of times high schools are really nervous about this issue and they're really nervous that parents won't like it. But I I tell them, well, the parents don't know the numbers yet. As soon as they know the numbers, as soon as they hear this, you know, leading cause of death, they're going to say, wait, can you tell my kid that information? Mm -hmm. But right now we're we're developing um, a birdie-like curriculum so that even if we can't get to a high school or even a middle school, they can teach it. Mm-hmm. You know, we supply that with videos and and um, printed material mm-hmm. so that they can do it themselves because this this can't wait a year. You know, this can't wait for me to travel to every high school in the country. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we did an event here at Gravity and I told you afterwards, you know, it feels like what you're doing is really akin to a, a, a dare or a mad, you know, a... Uh, other uh, epidemics that have been tackled to a large degree, to some degree, that this is in fact, you know, a real, real problem 
uh, of of enormous magnitude. I mean, eighteen to forty five. It's it's a it's a pretty wide range of of people that are falling victim to this substance, and 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 it has to be tackled. And it can be tackled. I think that's what I left feeling like this can be done. It has been done with other things, and you know, Beth, you, you know, why not? Like you, you're, you are the right person to do this. What are the obstacles? What are the biggest challenges? You mentioned the schools and the parents and, you know, the fear of, of ta- having this conversation. What, what else is really stopping this from, you know, getting out there and trying to stop this problem? I'd say number one is stigma. I think we, we still or have always stigmatized people or any situation that's associated with opioids. For a lot of people in this country, that problem is is elsewhere. It's not in their community. And um, for the longest time, we thought of fentanyl only as it relates to heroin. Mm-hmm. And we certainly have a history in our country of othering people who who use heroin or use needles when they're when they're ingesting drugs. And so many families, and I have to admit guiltily myself, that kind of epidemic didn't touch my life and it was out there. Mm-hmm. And so we we stigmatize. And because we still have that mindset, particularly in communities that might be more affluent, we'll say, though that's not happening around here. And I can guarantee everywhere it is happening. And it's rare to find a person that hasn't been touched by this epidemic. So I think the number one barrier we have to remove is to say this isn't this isn't about people out there. This is about Americans. You know, we don't have a, a drug use, drug abuse problem in our country that only associates to the people using the drugs. This is an American problem right now. Mm-hmm. And so we need to change that stigma the same way we changed the stigma around drunk driving and it just became commonplace to use the term designated driver. Mm-hmm. We need to make that uh, how we talk about fentanyl. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's this um, idea that we're somehow encouraging drug use or you'd be encouraging people to drink or we've seen it with condoms and other things that you've referenced in your talks. You know, we're not going to stop people I don't believe, you know, just say no works. So the education and the tools to prevent people from dying seems logical to me, but I think it's scary to a lot of people. They're concerned at least, and maybe it's not even concern. It might be other conditioning, religious or political, or, you know, all the things that go into people's worldviews and beliefs and actions. But Maybe you can just talk a little bit about that piece that you know we're trying to work with what is stop the 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 deaths really. I like how you phrase that. We're trying to work with what is because the numbers don't lie. We're in the midst of a, an enormous generational and public health crisis. I try to encourage uh, young people to really think about the the thought that you know when I speak to them that in twenty twenty two or for the last five years, there is no room in anyone's life right now for recreational drug use. 
and and I, I hate to say that, and I try not to be preachy when I talk to young people, but right now in this current crisis, taking a pill that doesn't belong to you is is like Russian roulette. Yeah. And it's never been like that before. And I really do hate that for this generation. Mm-hmm. You know, someone said to me not so long ago, like, what happened to the 1970s? Yeah. And I said, well, they're over. Yeah. They're over. And it's, it's really dark. Yeah. So I don't ever come into an auditorium and, and teach kids how to use drugs, um, which is what some people have said to me. I tell them about the numbers. I tell them about what is the greatest threat to their life right now. And then I say, if any of you in this audience are going to ever ingest anything, let me teach you about these two tools that will help keep you safe. And one is a fentanyl test strip and one is um, naloxone or Narcan. And those are the tools we have in the toolbox. Actually, they're the only two. And so we don't have any other way for an 18-year-old who's about to do a line of Coke. We don't have any other way to keep them safe. Mm -hmm. That's all we've got. And so if they have the education and they have the tools, we're going to get them close to safe. We're probably going to get them all the way to safe, to be honest, if they follow our instructions. Yeah, and I know that there's not a real clear why this is happening, but maybe you can just speak because it's still just like it's hard for me to totally get how this is happening to begin with. You know, what what is the what is the business model? What is the intent? Why would anyone want to create something that kills people? I you know, you know, it just it, it doesn't make sense to me and I don't know what you've learned about why this is even happening to begin with. There's definitely a, a gap in understanding. I don't, obviously, in my personal situation, there's never going to be any sense to it. I've understood from some people that because this is happening at a higher level, uh, this isn't the local dealer's problem. This is a higher level problem. And, you know, millions of pills are being circulated. It's big business, lots of money being exchanged. And if you do put some fentanyl in a few or all of your pills, and it creates a euphoria that perhaps some people are seeking, you're going to get a lot of returning customers. And obviously that model is working. I always think in business, if the model wasn't working, why would they keep doing it? So if the model's working and you're making um, a whole lot of money and there is some collateral damage, perhaps that's okay. And, and it's so unbelievably cold-hearted. Uh, so I, I struggle to accept it. I also know that with fentanyl, there's a lot of amateurs making it right now. And so they put it in pills at bad ratios, but maybe they don't even know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I was talking to some people last night uh, with some lived experience with um, substance use disorder, and they were saying that there is no answer because in the illicit or illegal drug world and, and also in the um, addiction world, things don't make sense. Things are always upside down. Yeah. And sometimes you don't even know what you're buying. Yeah. And some of it's cheap and some of it's good. And and I thought it was helpful for them to say that to me because I've struggled to have like a doctor's mind around this. Like what is the logical, rational explanation? And I don't think there is one. Yeah, that, that actually does make a lot of sense in that people that are doing this, you know, the creators in particular are not thinking with a sensible they they might have some of their own rationale, but it's it's obviously not good. 
Talk a little bit about, I see, I, I see you post when this is happening to other kids and it's happened to kids at Ohio State and Cincinnati and everywhere. What are you, how are you engaging with other parents, family? I mean, I know that isn't the focus of Birdie Light, but I'm sure people reach out. I mean, what resources are out there for people that are having this similar shared experience and and experiencing that horrific feeling? So on Birdie Light, you know, we're so fentanyl focused. And I think in the first six to nine months of Eli's death, I... I didn't want to be fentanyl focused. I didn't want Eli to be associated with fentanyl. Maybe that was my own stigma, right? I wanted him to still be purely Eli. And um, and so my advice for newly grieving parents would always be like, don't even don't even look at my website. <laughs> you know, you need to grieve your your child and 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 not just think about the thing that killed them. So that's hard for me because I do get a lot of parents reach out to me uh, offering to help, which is so courageous on their part. Early on, I followed this person on Instagram. The the site is called Refuge in Grief. And it was so powerful because for some reason, she just gets it. And she would post things like, make sure you go drink water today. Mm -hmm. You know, make sure you get outside. Here's what I did early on. And those are the types of sites that helped me um, oh. because birdie light's a thing, but the grief is a bigger thing. And, and you have to, you have to honor that. Yeah. And I tend to agree with you when you say that, you know, this wasn't supposed to happen. This is not how it's supposed to go. Um, a chasm. And I believe that when things happen as horrific as this is, that you do have something to offer as a result that um, could really be helpful for other people. And just like that woman on Instagram did for you, I mean, it's it can sometimes be as simple as like, here's what I did. That's really the reason for this podcast is that we all are having a experience as human beings and sometimes it's horrifically painful and... Uh, talking to people or listening to people who have been through it can really, really be massively impactful. So I think that's what you're doing now. And I know that you're still grieving and will forever, you know, experience that feeling to some degree, but it's, you know, really a service at the same time that you're doing for others. And I just uh, thank you for that. Is there anything else that you want to, share um, about Birdie Light, maybe the the name. I always love that part of the story. It's pretty moving. I'd love to. I did want to say too that, you know, you're, you're a dad. And I think um, for me, Birdie Light is, is sort of my last act of parenting for Eli. And um, that makes it easier, you know, because I, Every time I do something, a task for Birdie Light, and some of them are very mundane, you know, I have to, today I had to run to the post office. And, and in some ways it's, it's weird. I mean, maybe my brain is a little off since everything happened, but for me, it's sort of like, I have to run this errand for Eli, yeah. you know, just like when I would take him to preschool or whatever. Yeah. It's not the same, obviously, yeah. but it helps me. 
And um, and I just wanted to add that because if anyone is listening, perhaps that is grieving, that that it helps to break things down into mundane yeah. tasks. You know, going to run to the post office for Eli. Yeah, you know, which is in some ways uh, maybe inspirational, but also somewhat pitiful. But we make do, right? Well, I think it's really a nice way to frame it that it's still parenting. Mm-hmm. And if you're a mother, if you're a parent, that doesn't really ever end. Right. And that's, you know, what you're doing. Even not having Eli here, you know, physically, you're still parenting. It feels like you parent a soul that way. Mm-hmm. And it's that's really beautiful. I feel that. I do. And it's interesting because it's like the ultimate helicopter parenting because... You know, Eli doesn't have a chance to make his mark on the world more than he did. I mean, he made a huge mark on the world, but he doesn't have more of a chance. And so I'm sort of, as as an enormous helicopter parent, doing it for him. Yeah. You know, and and that makes what I'm doing feel mundane in a way. I'm just helping him. Yeah. I'm helping him do it. Yeah, sometimes that's just the job of a parent. It's a lot of you know, um, mundane actions one after the next, but collectively it really all adds up um, often without, you know, much reward. But yeah, um, yeah. let's uh, wrap up wherever you'd like to. Well, I can tell you about our name. So my daughter and Olivia, I were, were trying to think of a name for the organization, which we formed uh, 12 months ago. And um, we... I'll back up. Eli and his buddies uh, in middle school called themselves the Birdies. Uh, I'm not sure why, um, and it never really became a story. Actually, I was watching his um, bar mitzvah video the other day, and in his speech at his bar mitzvah, he he said, "I want to welcome all the Birdies to my bar mitzvah." Mm-hmm. So it was it was even when he was 13. So um, we decided to pull that into the name because at his memorial service, so many of the of the boys, now men wrote things on cards like, we miss you, Birdie. We love you, Birdie. And so we saved all those. And so we pulled that into the name and um, and then we, we drew a bird on a paper and we said, you know, maybe the canary in the coal mine, you know, that goes down to check for oxygen for the humans to make sure it's safe. And we equated that with the fentanyl test strip. And then we wrote out the, the word Birdie Light and we looked at it and I said, oh my God, E-L-I, Eli, is right in the middle of that word. And it seemed um, meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when you look at it and you can see how that E-L-I really pops off, it does feel very meant to be. Yeah. Well, um, thank you again for taking the time to share your story. I know it's never easy. And um, yet, you know, it's, important i think it's real and it's and it's inspiring and helpful for other people and um we'll certainly put links and um make sure people know where to find you and birdie light but if there's anything else that you want to just say as we as we wrap up i just would love to encourage you know not just parents but even you know business owners who have young employees to just share the information that's on our website and and just try to keep your community safe. It's it's not like I said. It's not going to just be the, a substance use problem. This is a this is a community problem. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a very important point to to land on. We don't have the luxury of sitting back and doing nothing and waiting for this to 
affect us directly or somebody else that we know. This is this is it. This is the story that hopefully people need to hear to just get into action and put all the other stuff aside. Uh, no, no more worries about stigma or how we get here or what it looks like or any of the other uh, stories that just aren't true. You know, the truth is, is that the people are dying in large numbers that, that don't, um, don't deserve to die, that don't know what they're doing, have no intentions of even taking that risk. And we've got to do something about it. And I like the idea of the employers too. I think, you know, we saw that with the YPO group. There are, uh, there's not a company in existence that doesn't have um, people from the age 18 to 45 making up a large part of their workforce. And so, you know, getting the education out any way possible uh, is, makes a lot of sense. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.